Today's scripture reading will be coming from the book of Matthew, chapter 24, verses 29 to 51. Again, that's Matthew, chapter 24, verses 29 to 51. For those, for those of us without a Bible, you will find a Bible below in the, in the chair in front of you. And turn to page 779. Please rise for the reading of God's word. <clears throat> Hear now the word of the Lord. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, <clears throat> and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet's, trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of the heaven, nor the Son, nor the, but the Father only. But as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as, for as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house has known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is the servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. Check. All right. Um, let's pray before we begin. Prepare our hearts, O Lord, to accept your word. Silence us in any voice but your own, that hearing we may also obey your will. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. There are seasons in life that we go through, and this is a season of interpreting the end portion of Matthew. It's also a season of basketball. And so these are very stressful times for me, especially since I play basketball. 
I do enjoy watching the young guys play because they're so fast. And then when I play, I feel like I'm playing in slow motion. It's like, oh, there's the ball. There goes the ball. It's like, oh. But I, I enjoy watching uh, good athleticism and appreciating that, so I look forward to seeing that. Uh, someone picked me in their team, so I apologize to the team captain. I don't know why, bro. What a waste of a draft. But I will do my best to fill space because uh, I am a heavy man. But that's about it. That's all I can offer. But in seasons in life, we get, um, we get to see certain trends happening. When we see certain trends happening, we as humans, we always look for patterns. When we look for patterns, we want to decipher patterns, and we want to be able to understand what is happening, why it's happening. This is a very human thing that we have. When we read passages like this in Matthew, and then we started to not just juxtapose it, but to place it in context, place it in the trend that is happening, we see that what Jesus is saying is so serious that we aren't just supposed to take it and be like, who can know? This is really tough stuff, you know? Like the sun is not going to shine? Eh, too much. Let's move on. However, when Jesus was actually saying this to people, he was saying it in such a serious tone that people who were listening to him, and we, as we read his words now, we should be like, whoa, what does this mean? Why is Jesus saying that? Again, I want to remind you, this is the last week and the last few days of Jesus' life and what he chooses to do. What he chooses to do in the last few days, and this is his last discourse, the last full teaching that he has, what we call the Olivet Discourse. What does he choose to say? And it's these words that we've read. I want to get us out of this notion that the teaching of the second coming is too difficult to understand. We have to get out of this kind of predilection, this kind of understanding, this kind of just precursor that we set our minds to immediately when we come into anything that has to do with eschatology, meaning the study of the end times. The Bible is not too hard to understand. Eschatology and the sign of the end times, the study of the end time, is not too hard to understand. In fact, people, I have asked people after Matthew, just out of curiosity, what book would you like to study as a church? And some people actually said Revelation. Revelation, uh, the Revelation of John or the book of Revelation has a lot of symbolism and imagery that's used. A lot of people read it, they've interpreted it wrong over the history, his, like the history, I, I suppose, that has happened. And people have now taken it like, it's too hard to understand. But when you open Revelation, go to the very first verses. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. That's what it says in Revelation chapter 1, verse 3. You know what this means, summarized and put together? It's blessed is the one who understands. Blessed is the one who understands. Blessed is the one who reads aloud. Blessed are the ones who hear. And blessed are the ones who keep 
what is written in it, for the time is near. We are to read out loud, we are to listen to it, and we are to follow what the Bible teaches. Why? Because the time is near. And if you're able to do this, the Bible shows us that you are blessed. Now, I do want to make a distinction. The distinction is that the prophecy may be clear, but the speculation on what how it is fulfilled may be unclear, okay? The prophecy is clear, but speculation in how it's fulfilled can go different in varying ways and degrees. And this is where we think because the speculation on how the prophecy is fulfilled, the def definition or the interpretation must be unclear. And this is why I would disagree. And I say the prophecies are very clear. And we'll go over word for word, verse for verse, like we always do. And you'll see that the prophecies are actually very clear. He is saying it very clearly, almost so simply enough, that I think that if we just read this, that's it. There's no extra explanation that's needed. That's how clear this Olivet Discourse and the prophecies in it are. So when does a prophecy then become unclear? When do these words start becoming unclear to us? And I have an answer for that. It's when you don't take the word seriously. When you don't take the word seriously, things start to become unclear. When you start from a place, and because of whole the modernism in the earliest, like 1900s and all these things that took, took place, and now actually all of us are inundated with this modernism, so if it's a miracle, we're just like, eh, you know, take a step back. That's not really scientific, right? And so the modernism started to take place um, really in full force in the 1900s, and now that has come and permeated our school systems, and so if you talk about miracles, it's like, that's not science, right? And then so um, we kind of have uh, separated ways from miracles, but by doing that, we've separated ways from the supernatural. When you do things like that and you start from a place where, it's a, where you believe that the supernatural does not exist, and by the way, uh, nobody can live this way. Even physicists don't live this way. This is why... We have super colliders and atoms like, uh, I don't want to get into it. But, you know, we're, we're making these things because we believe that there are more than three dimensions. These are scientists, and they're speculating. We have about like ten dimensions at least. And I just want to say it's called the supernatural because you don't see it. But um, otherwise, none of these uh, formulas work, right? And so I, I mentioned it before, especially in the beginning of time creation and black holes, the beginning and the end, uh, the regular formulas do not work. And so um, this is why people are trying to explain it through dimensional studies, extra dimensional studies, things that we can't really measure. So super colliders, when you like collide atoms at a really, really high rate, and then something else happens that's not supposed to happen. So you're like, ah, must be another dimension. These are scientists that are doing stuff like this. But when you start from a place that does not believe in miracles or the supernatural, what happens to you then is your mind has a huge burden now. You need to explain everything materially. And now when you need to explain everything materially, we start looking for evidence that will fit our theories, but not vice versa. We will start looking for evidence that fit our theories, our naturalistic or materialistic theories, and not vice versa. And so 
Well, I, I mean, one of the most fascinating things I do like reading in my spare time are things like the theory uh, when people come up and try to plug in the holes in the theory of evolution, like when do we become um, people, people who stood on two legs because we were always on fours, like are we the only animals that are on two? And then I remember this one scientist said, it's because we had to traverse as monkeys, we traversed like great distances and when we went into the river, uh, we needed to hold our belongings over our head. And so when we came out of the river, like, I like walking. And so we became monkeys that decided to walk. And I just like, wow, you know, like you should write a good fantasy novel, but you can't just make stuff up and be like, yeah, why not? Why? So, when, so now we teach these things and we're like, we're looking for evidence that fit our theories and then I would always ask people who really are into stuff like this, and I have friends who really are into stuff like this, I really want to know what their explanation is for the Cambrian explosion. And if you don't know what that is, I'll just give you a really quick, quick download on it. In the beginning of life, you see not fossil records really, but mineral like records or fossils. Mineral fossils are like things like jellyfish existed, and so we have mineral deposits that kind of took shape or form of these like jellies and things like that, or one-celled organisms. And then we have something called, in, in the fossil records, called something called the Cambrian explosion. And then it literally is an explosion because we have all these uh, arthropods and like these shelled uh, animals, like all different kinds of species just happen. And I'm just like, God, but other people are like, well, it must be something else. Something must have triggered the evolution. And I love reading all these recent theories. These are recent theories in the last 10 years. Like, oh, there must have been an increase in the oxygen in the atmosphere. There must have been multiple ice ages and ice traps the CO2. It's like, oh, these are really interesting. So do you have evidence for that? It's like very little evidence, but it has to be at least that. And then you would ask even more questions like, was it enough oxygen to ignite a Cambrian explosion-like experience? It's like, not really. There must have been something more. It's like, keep on thinking, bro. In the meantime, write more novels. Because we have an answer that we've been given. And we're always looking for evidence that'll fit our theories, but not vice versa. And so, uh, even when I was in my 20s, I would be reading these things because it was really huge. And then I would look at the evidence for even just carbon dating. People would be like, carbon dating, fact. And I was like, not really fact. I'm like, carbon dating is a method that we've been using. Radiocarbon dating, or like what we know as carbon dating. Um, there are some, there's a degree of error. Like, can we admit to that? It's like, no, you know. Carbon-14, the way it decays is very specific. And so um, most recently, uh, just a few years ago, it was Cornell, great school. But Cornell, uh, that, was un that was great, great school. Uh, some of our guys went to Cornell. Um, Cornell uh, produced this, uh, uh, this uh, scientific study, and they published it in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences that you could look up. And they, they have found that even carbon-14 dating, it's not consistent um, even for recent things. They were, they were like trying to car use carbon dating and they had the actual dating scientific studies. They could look at the tree and its decay and then they would use carbon dating to date this tree in you know, the Jordan area. And then they were off by like 19 to 20 years. That's crazy, this just happened. How can you be off by like two decades? And so 
what they said is uh, we need to do more study on the range of error between carbon dating. But if that's true, then we got to throw everything else out. So I don't think it's going to happen. Uh, people just need to hold on to those theories and say, this is scientific fact, right? But then what you do is you get rid of all the evidence that or like um, kind of facts that would do anything against your theory because we do actually do, we really do live in a post-truth era. Um, even in politics, people are like, what do you think about this? And I would say, you know what? If you are, let's say, of one particular party and you want to understand some event that happened, turn on this channel. If you are on this particular party and you want to understand what happened, turn on this channel because we just want to hear what kind of just solidifies our opinion. I'm in this political party, so tell me what I should know so that I can stay satisfied in this political party. However, um, that's not the truth, though. That's not the truth. You can't just continue to inundate yourself with the same kind of analysis that continues to reinforce that belief, even if you see evidence to the contrary. In fact, if you see evidence to the contrary, any kind of mind would be like, something to study. Let's do more study. Let's continue to think about it and then continue to publish records about what we've studied. They could be right, but they could be wrong. Can we at least say that? Instead, now, you guys may not know, but our young kids in school, teachers are even saying things like, it's called a theory of evolution, guys, but it's not a theory. It's just fact. That's what our, so even when I was in school, now, I was in school just a few years ago, but in school, I had a biology teacher that would tell me, guys, this is the theory of evolution. I know that some of you may be creationists, but we're not going to teach creationism here. We're going to teach the theory of evolution. And so he, he gave me that kind of buffer. And for me, that was a huge help, huge help. So it's like, ah, so this, there's going to be a lot of things that contradict what I believe or what our Christian belief is or the Judeo-Christian belief is on how the world started. So let me hear, let me measure, let me weigh. That really is truly scientific instead of saying, this is fact. And it's like, so how do we get to on two legs? Because we crossed water? It's like, that doesn't even make sense to a five-year-old. And so things like that is, are things that we are now being pushed up against. But why am I saying all these things? It's because every single person starts from somewhere. We start from somewhere. We start our understanding from some kind of base, right? And I'm telling you, for the Christian, it is the word of God. For the Christian, we start with the word of God. We don't start with anything else because everything else, as we have read today, will pass away. And if that is the case, then I would say if this is really true, if it's really true, then it should be hit with everything that the world has to offer and still be able to stand, right? If this really is true, if the prophecies and all the things that the word of God has been saying, it should be able to be hit with all these things and still be able to stand. We shouldn't be afraid to put, like, let's say the theory of evolution, like not just any kind of evolution, but like really the macroevolutionary stuff, like push up against it and does it still stand, right? Those are questions that we should be able to see and it should be able to pass that test. So we shouldn't become all defensive. We shouldn't become angry. We shouldn't like throw everything out. We should honestly look at it, look at it and see, wow, 
This has stood the test of time for 3,500 plus years. This has stood the test of time. People have thrown everything that they could at the word of God, and yet it did not falter. And so this is what I want to be able to preach here and give all of you here. People have been giving predictions for the end of time since the beginning of time. But there is only one prediction that is true, only one prediction then that matters, and that's the one that Jesus gives here. He goes immediately after the tribulation. Immediately after the tribulation is the parousia. And that's the title of this message. It's not so that I will confuse you. Parousia is just as what we know to be the second coming of Jesus Christ. Parousia is the second coming of Jesus Christ. Parousia is used four times in Matthew. All four times is in this chapter. Parousia, the second coming of Jesus Christ, okay? And so immediately after the tribulation is the parousia. This is when Christ returns to the earth, ending this current age, ushering the new, okay? So immediately after the tribulation is when? Just want to remind you that this is connected to last week's passage and uh, sermon. We saw that in the beginning of the Olivet Discourse, Jesus started saying, uh, started by saying, many will come in my name saying that they are the Christ. Don't believe them. Don't believe them. This happens and it happened. You will hear of wars and rumors. Don't be alarmed. This happened and it still happens. These things must take place, but it's not the end yet, right? Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, famines, earthquakes. This happened, and it still happens. And this is what Jesus says as he is defining the times. He is saying these are just the beginning of birth pains. But after he says that, he says there will be tribulation. There will be tribulation. You will be put to death. You will be hated by all the nations. And all these things define the tribulation. This is happening now. Now, we cannot keep a blind eye to what the world is doing to Christians right now. Just because you are safe doesn't mean Christians in the world are safe. In fact, the vast majority of Christians outside of this country are being uh, persecuted to a degree that you would not imagine. You could not imagine. We still don't know where all these internment camps that China and North Korea are building look like, period. And I would show people, ah, these are some like hidden uh, cameras that someone took while they were in an internment camp in China. And you will look at this guy, and this guy's just literally just skin and bones. He lost all his fat, no muscle, and so he can't even close his mouth. It's just all skin and bones, and you just see teeth. And he has a gaping mouth open. These are people suffering and being persecuted right now for the faith. And so there is tribulation. You will be put to death, hated by all the nations. But after this is where we get to. This is the time. And so that was last week's sermon. This week is he goes immediately after the tribulation is what? There will be a cosmic event. Unlike nothing and no one has ever witnessed before. The sun will be darkened. The moon will not reflect light. 
the heavenly bodies will fall and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Once again, this is very clear. It's very, it's very, it's, it's not just concise. It's so clear that there's really nothing that you can like add to or subtract from. This is what Jesus is saying. The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heaven will be shaken. That is a very clear thing. How many of us are thinking in the end times, this will, this will happen? And yet, Jesus clearly stays, says that in this uh, explanation of the parousia. You will hear of wars, rumors of wars. Don't be alarmed. These things will take place. Nation will rise against nation. There will be tribulation. And then one cosmic event. I honestly think there's not much to explain here. And for those, of that, for those of you that thought, oh, eschatology, that's such a hard word. It's too difficult. It's too weird for me to understand. See how clear Jesus makes it for his disciples. The end of the world is a cosmic event brought about by supernatural forces, and God is going to do it. It's going to affect the material world in a way that you will never have seen before. You would have never seen before, and you will never see again. That's the kind of cosmic event that Jesus is talking about. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with, great, with power and great glory. In the parousia, all the nations that have hated the disciples of Jesus Christ, who have had the gospel of Jesus Christ preached to them, because remember last week we said Jesus is saying all the, gospel, all the nations will hear the gospel. Who have persecuted the disciples, they will mourn. That's kaptomai. Kaptomai literally means to beat one's chest in mourning. If, you, you know, if you've seen like people who really mourn because they lost their child, they're just in devastated grief. They start beating their chest. Uh, that's kaptomai. That's the kind of mourning uh, Jesus is talking about. Because they will see Jesus coming, the parousia, with power and great glory. They're going to be like, I was wrong. Jesus was right. In verse 31, it says, And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. We see this imagery in a lot of the Bible, both the Old Testament and the New. Whenever the trumpet is sounded, that means it is talking about the end time. We see this in Isaiah 27, 13, the Old Testament, but also the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 15, 52, 1 Thessalonians 16. And then um, just really quickly in 1 Thessalonians, it says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise. This is what Jesus is saying about the parousia. He's like, this is going to be the end times. Very clear, this is going to happen. There are some things we don't understand, like how will the earth be darkened? I don't know, you know? He's not gonna, he, he doesn't go, oh, all of a sudden a black hole will appear. I don't know, right? I, I really find some of this stuff fascinating, so... I do, I do look up like people explaining and people writing. When can a black hole appear? Literally, the physicists that, that study it, they're like, anywhere, anytime. So can it open up right here, right now? He's like, yup. I was like, okay, it's good hope. Uh, but we, I don't know. I don't know. But we know that this will happen. 
That's for sure. And then he says something very interesting. He goes, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. When the fig tree has leaves, you know that summer is near, is what he is saying. So when you see all these things that are happening, everything that I've explained to you, everything that Jesus is saying, he is saying it is near. I know it says here, um, in verse 33, see, see, so also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Uh, there is no he or it um, in, in the actual, there's no personal pronoun in the Greek. It's just near, right? When you see all these, hap- when you see all these things happening, near. So we understand it to be the parousia. So it could either be translated, it is near or here, he is near. They're both right. And so when you see all these things, what are all these things? It's the birth pains. When you see all these birth pains happening, the parousia is near. So the birth pains climax with the parousia. The birth pains that is explained from last week, that Jesus explains, climaxes with the second coming of Jesus Christ. And this is what Jesus says, which has so, been so controversial, which I will take an attempt to explain in two minutes, but you could read literally books on this. Atheists have taken this line to say Jesus was wrong, right? So this is a very important line that we must understand. Like Bertrand Russell, very famous atheist. He says, verse 34, that's why Jesus is false, right? So let's see what it says. Truly I say to you, remember when it says truly I say to you is amen. He's saying this for sure will happen. This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Truly, I say to you, amen. This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And so, amen to start a statement is the the surety and Jesus claiming biblical authority, saying this will happen happen and he even ends this side with heaven and earth will pass away but my words will not pass away like sandwiching excuse me sandwiching the this line like this is doubly sure this will happen this generation will not pass away until all these things take place so what's this generation this generation has never in the bible meant anything other than the people listening so the parousia didn't come when Jesus, was, when Jesus was telling this to the disciples. The second coming didn't come. This is why people like Bertrand Russell and all these other atheists are like, see, Jesus is wrong. He said he was going to come again in that generation, and he didn't, and so not going to believe in Jesus. And you're like, dude, wait, but did he die? It's like, yeah, there's scientific evidence that he died. Did he come back to life? Are there witness scientific historical records of him coming back to life? It's like, yeah. It's like, what the? And so those are things like they'll pick out a verse and because they don't understand. They'll be like, it couldn't have taken place. So Jesus is not true. This is something in theology that we see and we understand as something, uh, the difference between a terminus a quo and a terminus ad quem. Terminus a quo, terminus ad quem. And just, it's a really simple way of saying the start of something and the end of something. So when we see all these things take place, Jesus is saying this generation, meaning the people that are going to listen, are going to see the terminus a quo. They're going to see the end of the times start. That's the terminus a quo. And so Jesus is saying, amen, this generation will see it. And they do. They do. 
We know that it started with the destruction of the temple. And if you and I have been talking, we won't take too much time here, but if you and I have been talking personally and private, I shared with you some of the accounts that are written about not just people eating their babies, which was horrible in itself, but even more horrible things coming, deception to a great degree. Like everybody in Jerusalem was completely wiped out, completely. People are saying like every single person died. Yeah, every single person died and just some rabbis escaped. Like because they made a deal. It was terrible. But these are things that we see really did happen. Like people were dashed against the rocks, like Jesus said. People took babies and threw them against the rocks. It's insane. Like the records that are in there, people, are, people started to see like bright lights. When you, okay. So if I go, I saw this bright light, you might be like, what did you eat today? You know, like who gave you what? Brownie, I don't know, whatever it is, right? If you see, like, if I go, I saw a bright light. But then if I go, I saw this bright light, and then Peter goes, I saw that bright light. You're like, do you both eat something weird, right? And then Daniel goes, I saw this bright light. And Brooke goes, I saw this bright light. And you're like, this is weird, because you don't hallucinate at the same time, right? So, like, this is weird. So people in the city all are recorded to saying, not, this is not just Josephus writing, this is also Tacitus writing. They saw this bright light, <laughs> It looked like a sword, and it hung there, and it just stayed there. And people were like, what does this mean? And people were like, ah, it must mean that God will save us. And people are just, all these false prophets literally did come up saying, I am the Messiah. This means God's going to save us. Everybody come to Jerusalem. And people all came to Jerusalem. They all died. Jesus is saying, get out of Jerusalem. And the people that got out, didn't die. There's some crazy, crazy events that have been recorded, especially in this uh, destruction of the temple. And so people are saying, ah, the bright light, we don't understand. But they saw bright lights in the sky. And so people are like coordinating Haley's Comet. Like every 75 to 80 something years, Haley's Comet comes by. So if you guys don't know, it's because you're too young. But I think it came in the 80s. So if you were alive in the 80s, you saw Haley's Comet. Everybody's going crazy, right? They sent a rocket ship to observe it. And then it like blew up, so all like nine people died, if you remember. Um, so it'll come again in like 75, 80 years. So if you're a millennial, you'll see it once in your lifetime, hopefully. But people are like calculating Halley's Comet and coming, oh, there must have been, it might have been Halley's Comet. So people are doing all this mathematical study, astrological study, trying to figure out what are these people saying? Because everybody couldn't have seen this bright light. What's going on? So some crazy stuff was happening. And there's books and books and records and records written about it. But it was a horrific, terrifying, like, like literally apocalyptic levels of destruction that happened in Jerusalem. And Jesus is warning them in a very serious, in a very serious way. But he's saying these birth pains start what's going to happen, the parousia. So that's what he's talking about this generation don't get confused, okay? Again, I want to say this is so that we understand. This is not some, I get it, there are some places in the Bible that is purposefully enigmatic so that we can continue to study, but some of the stuff is really clear, and this stuff is really clear. When exactly is it going to happen, though? And this is what Jesus answers in verse 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, and he goes, nor the son. Who's the son? He's the son. He's like, nor the son, but the father only. 
We do not know the exact time, but there is something that goes beyond it, okay? We don't know the exact time, and we shouldn't predict it either. Please, stop predicting it and stop following people who say they predicted it. Day and hour remain unknown so that people are like, so we get to know the month and year? I really want to say, are you dumb? Like, if Jesus is going to be like, oh, yeah, I said you wouldn't know the day and time. You're like, but we can know the month and year. Jesus is like, you got me, buddy. Ah, you, <laughs> you, you, you went around. You just got me. You really think that's what he's teaching? It's the teaching. He's teaching the spirit. What kind of spirit should we have? Isn't he teaching the son doesn't even know? Why is he teaching that? Because we should rest in the father's knowledge. Jesus rests in the Father's knowledge of knowing the exact time. And so we should also rest in that knowledge, knowing that, ah, the Father knows the time. Jesus trusts and rests in him, and we should too. That's what he's teaching. Jesus' humility and trust in the Father is given to us as an example for us to follow. Trust God. Trust God is what he starts this verse with, verse 36 And the following verses that I'm going to explain now is about trusting God first and then how to prepare yourself. Trust God, and the next verses are how to prepare yourself. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, there were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. So in the days of the flood, this happened, and this is what's going to happen too. So this still happens today. People are eating, people are drinking, people are getting married, people are having kids, right? That's what's going to happen. And then the day of Noah came, they entered the ark, and the flood came and swept them all away. And he goes, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. That word, that word again, literally is the parousia, the coming of the Son of Man. So just like Noah, the parousia will look like that. Until the last moment, life went on. People are eating, people are drinking, people are marrying, all the normal life functions that will happen. People are unaware about what is to come. But who is aware then? Who is aware about what is to come? People listening to Jesus. People listening to Jesus. People reading the word. People understanding the blessed. Then two men will be left in the field, one will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. How unexpected? One will be playing basketball, one will be guarding, and all of a sudden, no, I'm just kidding, uh, but it will be so that one is taken and one is left. The most obvious like question you might have after reading this is, is this referring to the rapture? Is this referring to the rapture? I'm going to take just a few minutes. And the, by the way, the study on eschatology is very, very robust, so... It's, it's wonderful, and I'm just giving you the nice little, you know, the core, but also the top frosting, so you get the good stuff. But you can even study it more, is my point. Uh, the most obvious question you might have is, have is, is this referring to the rapture? First, first off, one is taken and one is left doesn't necessarily mean 
that one, the one taken is good, right? It doesn't say that, right? Does it say that? But we, we kind of read into it because of, like, the stories we've heard. So it doesn't say which one is better. Jesus doesn't specifically say the one taken or the one left is better off. The point is, he is saying it's going to be sudden. That's the point. So instead of reading into the stuff, we need to know what the point is, okay? This is a hard time, and I'm going to be honest, as a pastor, I get frustrated a little bit, is especially if I give things like, this is the point of the passage, the parable of the, the vineyard owner, the master, right? Like how he gave a denarius to anybody, no matter how long they worked. People still go, oh, yeah, because, you know, I want to work a lot, or I want to work a little. The whole point of the parable is it doesn't matter how long you work, right? What's the point of the parable? It's about God dispenses his grace as he pleases. It's about God's grace, right? So the point of the parable of the laborers in the vineyard is that God is gracious. That's what we should take. Nothing about the time. In fact, specifically, Jesus goes, the time doesn't have anything to do with it. But multiple people here have referred to that parable as, ah, yes, I want to work long, long or short, as if it was a parable about them. This is a parable teaching about God. In the same way, in the same way, if you have a disposition in the stories that you've read and that you grew up with about the rapture, you will read into this. So if I go, who's better off, the one taken or left? What does it say? It doesn't say anything. It doesn't say anything. So that's not the point of this part, okay? It could be that the one left is better, First Thessalonians 4, right? Whatever. Or it could be the one that's taken is better. Jesus doesn't say that here because that's not the point. Take the point. The point is that it will be sudden. It will be sudden. That should be scary enough. <clears throat> um, I enjoy showing Nicolas Cage movies to my wife, Esther. So whenever I have time, it's like, hey, Esther, I'm gonna, let's watch this movie. She's like, is it good? It's like, no, it's really bad. It's like, why are we watching this? Because it's Nicolas Cage. And so the most recent one, and so now, now, you can ask her, now, uh, she, she, I go, you want to watch a movie? She goes, no movies. And so we, we've been barred from watching movies. But uh, the most recent one was something called Left Behind by Nicolas Cage. At the time when I looked at it, uh, it got like a 2 point something, 2.87 rating. Out of 10, out of 10, okay? So it's not like 2 point something out of 5. It's 2 point something out of 10. I looked at it last night. It was, it jumped up to 3.1. So a lot of people like me uh, signing on to IMDb. But in this movie, it's just about, you know, going about your day, day to day, like he's flying a plane, and all of a sudden half the people disappear. And then so it's a really, really bad movie. It's so good because it's so bad. So I really enjoy Nicolas Cage, this particular actor, because if you like overacting, that's, he's the epitome of overacting. It's like... This water is so good. Oh, and then he'll drink it. That's, that's how he acts. So I love it. I love it. And so those are things that <clears throat> I have subjected my wife to. But it's a movie about the rapture because people have these ideas about the rapture. But let me tell you this. There is rapture. There is rapture. Okay, this is a biblical notion. There is rapture, but perhaps not in the way you think. Okay? 
There is a school of thought that teaches that there will be pre-tribulation rapture, meaning that Christians will be raptured up before the tribulation time comes. Um, technically speaking, there is no Bible verse that teaches that. And if you believe in pre some, some Christians and some really, really, like, one really good teacher that I respect teaches this as well. I love this teacher. Amazing. But um, so I'm not saying like you're crazy if you think this. I'm just saying that there is no Bible verse that teaches that. And um, the closest one that we have to this understanding is not from the Olivet Discourse, but from the first letter to the Thessalonians. I'm going to read it to you just so that I could clear up this idea of rapture. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 to 17, it says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. This is what people think is about rapture, right? This is the rapture, but perhaps not in the way you think. There is here in these verses, we see the purpose of the dead rising. And we see us being raptured to Christ as Jesus is returning. It's very specific. It's in the word. There is rapture. But he is not taking us out of the world to like somewhere else like you Stay in this corner for He is lifting us up to him. Why? To participate with him. In what? In his parousia, in his triumphal return. That's literally what the Bible verse is saying. So if you were living in Paul's time, you would have understood this. There are Roman legions, like legions of soldiers that were dispatched. And you will go on a conquest. You go on battles and wars. You go to a foreign country. You go to some kind of military campaign. And then when you would return victorious, it was the return, the coming of the Roman legions. They had in their, uh, <clears throat> you know, the standard bearers, their flags, right? They would write S-P-Q-R, on their flags, all right, on their standard bearers. They were right, S-P-Q-R. And in Latin, it stands for Senatus Populus Q Romanus. Senatus Populus Q Romanus, S-P-Q-R. What that, what that means is the Senate, Populus People, Q is of, Romanus of Rome, right? So it means the Senate and the people of Rome. That was the banner that they held, okay? So when they returned from a successful military campaign, they would hold this banner as PQR, the Senate and the people of Rome. Why would they hold that? Why would they hold that? Because these were, when you would go into a conquest or a military campaign, this isn't just for their own like selves. This was to show that you also belong to me, we belong to you, we are one. We are one. So <clears throat> when they would come back, they would camp outside the city, and then they would send a messenger inside to Rome saying, we came back. And then everybody that would hear, if you were a citizen, so the populace, or if you were a senator, you would run out to meet uh, the Roman legions. And as you run out, then there would be a coming in 
of the armies, the legions, the Roman legions, right? They would come in and they would march into the city victorious. But guess who was marching with them? Senatus Populus. Q. Romanus. It's all the people. So they would take the people, the people would run out, meet them, and enter victoriously. That's the kind of language in Greek that Paul uses in 1 Thessalonians. He's saying that when Jesus comes back in conquering power, both, believer, both dead and alive believers, he's going, to be, he's going to take them up, catch them up to where they are, and he's going to, you're going to join him in that conquering. And so that's actually what that verse means. So what other, what other things that you may have heard, any kind of stories that you may have heard, I want you to know, stick with the Bible, stick with what the Bible says, and that's where you don't kind of go too far off into all these other theories, you know, like driving a plane, Nicholas Cage, whoa, my co-pilot's gone, what do I do, you know, that kind of thing. And so, <clears throat> it's, a, it's a great movie. Uh, I, rec- I highly recommend it, but don't tell me how you feel about the movie after, because I already know, right? <laughs> You're going to love it. Uh, 3.1, baby. But... These are people that are just, you know, using their imaginations, and I really enjoy that. But is it true? The answer, obviously, is no. So this is what the Bible says. Continue to keep what the Bible says. A lot of people have all these legends and theories that other people have made up. That's what it is. I just take it for what it is, you know? Like, I don't believe elves are real. And so, um, you know, but I can still enjoy it. So, and this is why, if this happens... If Jesus is going to come and rapture the people so that we, as his people, come in for his victory, through his power and his great glory, then what does he say? He goes, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. So stay awake. Stay awake. Verse 42, you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night a thief was coming, he would have stayed awake. Like, if you knew, then you could have been like, oh, yeah, I got to fix this, fix that, make sure. But you don't know. So stay vigilant. Stay awake. If you love the Lord, if you really love the Lord, then heed his warnings and stay vigilant. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? And he goes, blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, amen. Another amen. This is for sure going to happen. He will set him over all his possessions. That's a crazy statement. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed, when is he really going to come and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour he does not know and he will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Every time Jesus talks about weeping and gnashing of teeth, and he says that a lot in Matthew, he's talking about hell. Jesus talked about hell more than any other prophet or than any other book in the Bible. Jesus talks about hell because it's a reality that is for sure going to come. Weeping and gnashing of teeth, they will be put to hell. And so there are two kinds of people here. There is a faithful and wise servant, and there is a wicked servant. Which one are you? You think you know God. Which one are you? And so he is saying, if you do not do what Jesus is telling him, you are like the wicked servant 
who takes advantage of other people and just eats and drinks with drunkards. And like, Jesus is not going to show up. Come on. Like, I've, look, I've eaten and drank before, and nothing happened. Don't worry. And so he's going to come when he doesn't know. And he's going to put him with the hypocrites in hell. That's a, that's a pretty, pretty strong statement. However, the flip side is also equally strong, if not stronger. If I ask you, in what hope do you serve God? What hope do you serve God? What is Jesus saying, I want you to do this, I'm going to give this to you? He amens it. He goes, he will set him over all his possessions. Now, I just want you to think about that. I'm going to talk about my dad real quick, but I know he's here. When I was a younger man, my dad would say this thing that has stayed with me. He would say, what's mine is yours because you're my son and you're my child. What's mine is yours. Now, he was trying to teach me a principle. Was this actually true? The answer is obviously no. You know, I'm not going to, I'm not, if I'm 13, he goes, what's mine is yours. Yes, I could drive the car and then crash it and I'm going to get Discipline, right? And so, what's mine is yours is a principle that he was teaching you. This is what God does for his children. He is setting all his children over all his possessions. What is in God's possession? He's saying, you keep vigilant. You keep strong because what God has prepared for you is beyond your imagination, beyond your understanding. Just like even as a 13-year-old, I didn't really know what my dad really had. It was more than just a car. As a 13-year-old, I thought car. But it was more than that. It was wisdom. It was love. It was presence. It was teaching. It was a promise that he's going to be with me. Those are all the things that he's saying when he goes, what's mine is yours. When Jesus goes, amen, he will set him over all his possessions. This is a incredible promise that Jesus is giving to his disciples that we are to take and we have to be like whoa even more than I can ever imagine then why in the world am I wasting time with sin because this is something that God hates and he will be separated from this is something that we have to understand In this world, there is a lack of discernment, and this is something that I pray all of you have. Because we think that believing in God is just enough. As long as I believe in God, I'm going to tell you this, it's not enough. And that might shock you, but let me tell you what I mean. Because it's one thing to believe in God, and another thing to believe God. It's one thing to believe in God, But it's another thing to believe God. Even the demons believe in God. But do you believe God? Meaning, do you believe that everything that he's saying is absolutely true? Do you believe it when he says he loves you? He loves the little children. He takes care of you like a shepherd would take care of a sheep. But even more so, he is the great shepherd. Do you believe that? Do you believe when he goes, I am the bread of life, meaning he's going to feed you. He's going to take care of you. He's going to give you what you need. Do you believe that? Because if you really believe that, when you set what he has promised you against sin, what separates you from that promise, you start hating the sin. 
you start hating the sin. There's no other way to look at it. My friends, there's no other way to look at it. You cannot love sin anymore because that's what separates you from God. So what do we do? Why are we gathered together? Just to remind ourselves of the promise? Yes, yes. But also to spur one another to good deeds, good works, to be holy. You know, we can't do it alone. I don't know if you know, but late at night, you should be sleeping. If you're not sleeping, you might be doing something bad. Like, that's just, so what, what do we do? We spur each other on. Like, when did you go to sleep? You know, are you doing okay? Do you need help? Do you need prayer? That's what the church is there to do. Um, Peter wrote this epistle, the second, his second epistle, chapter 3, he says this, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. You might be like, oh, when is Jesus coming? Soon. It could be right now. It really could be because his word proves true. With the, day, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. But the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you. Do you see? He's showing. The reason why he hasn't come yet is because of you. Not wanting anyone to perish. If you are in the elect, he does not want you to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But, Peter goes, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. What is looking at us at the end of the world? It is not man-made. Man will not destroy this world. God will. That is assured in the word. And in verse 11 it goes, Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you be? Right? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destructions of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. This is Peter. Peter, at the, when he was writing his letter, people would read this letter and we, because this is so loving. People are like, Peter has changed. Like I would read accounts of Peter. He just seems like an angry man. Maybe all young men have to go through anger. But he's so loving here. And in his love, he is warning us. There is a day where everything is going to be destroyed in this way. Therefore, we as people that have been chosen by God live differently. Right? We live with a hope that is impossible to have outside of Jesus Christ. This hope is impossible to have outside of Jesus Christ. And this is the hope that we have been given through Jesus. I want to urge you, get into a smaller group, find friends here, get plugged in. It's not for program's sake. Come on. Come on. Like, I could be doing other stuff too, you know. I could be watching more Nicolas Cage movies. I could. But there are bigger things at stake. Join the smaller group. Find friends here. What we do is we spur each other on to good works, to holiness, 
because that is where we continue to learn, ah, this is what it means when God wanted to me, me to be holy like he is. So we don't love the sin of the world. In fact, the sin of the world disgusts us more and more because God is against it. And we see that because of the sin, oh my gosh, life is getting worse and worse and worse. It does, doesn't get better. And yet we fooled ourselves. But if you've had that flip switched by the Spirit's power, then know that you can never live that way again. Get that accountability. Get prayed for. Don't neglect or put down the power of prayer. If you are struggling with sin, struggling with anger, struggling with bitterness, struggling with envy, struggling with anything, depression, hope in the future, all these things, get prayer. There's power in prayer. Why? Because God says there's power in prayer. He says pray for each other. It's literally in the word, and if it's in the word, it will happen. So in faith, do these things. But if I were to put it simply, if we know that the world is going to end, and we do, the Bible tells us how should you live? You should live holy and godly lives because by living holy and godly lives, we are looking forward to Jesus coming again. We are looking forward to the parousia. This is my prayer for you. I pray that this church will be a church that looks forward to the parousia. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this time and what the message that you've given us in its seriousness, in its depth, but also in its clarity and simplicity. Father, we ask that you would empower us now with your spirit. We cannot do this alone, and we always seem to falter, yet we hold on to the promise that we are yours and you will not let us go. Oh God, convict us where we need conviction. Help us to hate the sin that put you on that cross that would have damned us otherwise and help us to follow you in holiness, in maturity, and in love for you and for one another. Let's take this time to pray. And as we pray, um, let's, let's see, look at our lives. Uh, have the Holy Spirit really convict your heart. Are you living as if you are looking forward to the coming of Jesus Christ? And if not, ask the Holy Spirit to empower your heart change your heart, transform your heart so that it would. And guess what? Your actions will change. It will be more like his. And the day when Jesus comes will be a great day of triumph for you. Let's pray.